On today's episode of Sports and the World, we talk about who's in charge, my MLB report, NBA duos, and Brown's big picture. That's today on Sports and the World. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to us, and how you're listening to us, whether it's through Anchor or Apple and Google Podcasts, thank you for making sports and the world a part of your day. I'm Ladarius Brown, I hope all of you had a great week so far, and if not, I hope the next week is better, and also the weekend is right around the corner. And also, hope all of you are staying cool out there, record heat all over the country, even in Paris. So I hope all of you are staying cool in some capacity. And with that, let's get in. Now, I talked about leadership in an episode a while back. And one key component to leadership was that you have to know who's in charge. Who's running? Who's running a company? Who's running a business? Sometimes who's running the family? No, not mafia stuff, but... If your mafia guys are listening, you know, there you go. You have to know who's in charge because who do you look to for guidance? We knew for eight years Democrats looked to Barack Obama. And now, in a in a year where we're looking for a Democratic candidate to challenge Trump in 2020, there seems to be a shift in who we're looking toward. And I'm referring to the squad. And that's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Talab. And it seems that we're looking to them after Trump went after them via the tweets. Now we look to them. And do many Democrats look to them? And I believe they do. And, And that to me is a problem. And there's a similar problem on the Republican side as well, where there's a clear division of Trump Republicans versus Republicans. And, you know, they face a similar problem with Tea Party Republicans. So, and that's the division I think the Democrats have. It's those who are for the squad and those who are with the established Democrats, like a Nancy Pelosi, who I'll talk about shortly. And, and the candidates running for president. And I want to talk about one specifically, and that's Joe Biden. Joe Biden did an interview with CNN a while back, and he talked about Ocasio-Cortez. And I'm, I'm going to tell you what he said. He said, quote, by the way, I think Ocasio-Cortez is a brilliant, bright woman, but she won a primary. In the general election fights, who won? Mainstream Democrats who are very progressive, on social issues and very strong on education and health care. And he also said the majority of Dems are center left, not far left. And the takeaway from that is he knows how smart Acacio Cortez is. People have very opinions on that. You know, I have an opinion on that, but that's not the point of this segment. The point of this is to say is while Joe Biden respects Ocasio-Cortez he's saying we're 
she won a primary. And what she's saying is that, excuse me, what he's saying is, is that long term, can you win the bigger fights? And that's what Joe Biden is talking about. I don't think it was a backhanded insult. I, I really don't. Maybe people may take it that way, but I don't because he's been through general election fights. He ran with Barack Obama twice. You know, he's won primaries. He's done, he's talking long term. So, a while back, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was interviewed by Vogue. And this was before Biden jumped into the race. And this was before we had a debate. And so, he, excuse me, she talked about, at that time, the controversial remarks he made about working alongside segregationists in the Senate. So, this is what AOC had to say. She said, quote, that's my frustration with politics today, that they're willing to give up every single person in America just for that dude in a diner, just so that they can get this very specific slice of Trump voters. If you pick the perfect candidate like Joe Biden to win that guy in the diner, the cost will make you lose because you will depress turnout as well. And that's exactly what happened in 2016. We picked the logically fitting candidate, but that candidate did not inspire the turnout that we needed. You know, a lot of what she said was very true. A lot of it, I think, I I don't necessarily agree with. I'll go with what I agree with. I agree that the turnout was the issue. I do agree when she specifically said the, the candidate did not inspire the turnout that we needed. Hillary Clinton did not inspire people to go out and vote. Because, in essence, I could argue that's across the board. These were, her and Trump were the two most disliked candidates in the history of modern presidential elections. So, she has a very good point there. She also has a point where, you know, you sacrifice every person for that one dude in a diner. Like, you're willing to sacrifice this to get that one person, or to get a slice of Trump voters, who may be disillusioned by Trump. But, the one thing that she said that I completely disagree with, that they picked the logically fitting candidate, and I don't think the Democrats did that in 2016. I, I do believe, and people may say, you know, it's, you may be abhorrent to say, But I felt that Bernie Sanders had the best shot in 2016 because he had more of a demographic edge, key demographics. He had women, he had minorities. Hillary Clinton could not draw that. If you wanted white women, Hillary was your person. If you wanted, like Joe Biden said, mainstream Democrats, Hillary was your person. Bernie Sanders was it. Now, mind you, I don't agree with him, but Bernie has policy, but I felt that he was the best fit in 2016. But the Democrats felt, well, we have to push Hillary. We have to push the female narrative. That didn't work. It didn't work in 2008 where the late, great John McCain tried with Sarah Palin, and it imploded. So, I, 
so you can read between the tea leaves and say that she's right about like the candidate, you know, Hillary Clinton did not inspire the turnout, but she was not the logically fitting candidate to inspire said turnout. But what I do believe is, is that Alexander Castro Cortez, I do believe that if the squad has the power that they do, and the Democrats, they would prefer a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. They both fit that narrative and kind of fit the opposite of what I just said about Joe Biden, what he said about being center left and far left. The Democratic Party right now, these candidates, for the most part, are in center left. They're left, clearly. It's like if Republicans ran in 2016, there were some who were center right. So the problem is, is that right now, if you're a Democrat, who are you listening to? Are you listening to the squad? Or are you listening to mainstream Democrats like Joe Biden? Or even Nancy Pelosi? Because that's where the bigger fight is. And I believe in the bigger fight because, listen, she's the Speaker of the House. And and with this impeachment versus no impeachment, you know, I, I talked about it last episode. But listen, they're trying to get articles of impeachment over these comments, essentially. And once again, Nancy Pelosi kiboshed it. Everyone voted no impeachment. That lets me further know that Democrats are siding with Pelosi, obviously. But you did have some who did vote for impeachment. Obviously, the squad did. And several other members of the Democratic Party. My, my bigger point here is, is that there's a deeper issue. And and I want to also go to a quote said by Rashida Talab, one of the other members of the squad. And she said something very, how can I describe it? Very specific about maybe directed toward Nancy Pelosi, maybe not. But this is when they sat down with Steve at this morning's Gail King. And essentially, when asked, when Gail King asked the Congresswoman, when she asked the squad if they've been con- in contact with Pelosi, Acacio said, Well, our teams are in communication. And King asked the logical question, Well, shouldn't you be meeting face to face? And this is what Talab interjected. She's the new she's the new member, not the speaker. She has every right to sit down with her at any moment, any time, with any of us. She is the speaker of the house. She can ask for a meeting to sit down with us for clarification. And then she went on to say that acknowledge the fact that we are women of color. So when you do single us out, be aware of that. And what you're doing, especially because some of us are getting death threats, because some of us are being singled out because of our backgrounds, because of our experiences and so forth. And and that to me is the fight is where does Nancy Pelosi understand that the comments were by Trump? And like I say, people clearly don't like them. 
the the comments and the tweets that Trump made. Talab's point is, and listen, I'm not defending one side or the other here, but I believe what Talab is saying is that you have to understand that when you're not a person of color, you can't understand the words Trump hit at us. Then, and, and and I can understand Pelosi's hard line. I can understand that too. But the one thing that I don't understand is, is that when it comes to this little feud is that these are freshman congresswomen. And I understand they were voted in to change the demographic of the Democratic Party. Smart women. I get it. But the problem is that you can't come in and essentially try to sweep the whole Democratic Party to believe your ideologies. You can't do that. Because you cause said friction and you can't cause friction when there's an election year approaching. And also when you have 2020 candidates trying to be the Democratic nominee. So I believe for Democrats, the choice is the choices are clear. If you want to go with the squad, you're looking at Bernie Sanders a little bit more. If you want mainstream, you're looking at Joe Biden. You may be looking at oh, come on. you're looking there. There's a division. And and I believe voters will get, but we'll get it right on one side or the other. But this is the thing. Going back to Trump. Listen, this comes from very smart people at the New York Times, Jeremy Peters. Annie Carney, Maggie Haberman. There's three. There's election, re-election strategy for Trump. He made it very clear: increase turnout, solidify the base, portray opponents as not simply disliking him and his policies, but America itself. It's nothing new. Nixon did it with Vietnam. He basically said, "If you're against my policies, you're not American." If you're, you're, so it's not a strategy that was developed overnight. And right now, given the circumstances today, is Donald Trump, does he have a clear path to win in 2020? I don't think so. Because it really does depend on who the nominee is. Any other year, I would tell you, well, if that person's the nominee, well, then they have no shot. That person, oh, they have a great shot. And I do believe that there's three to four candidates running right now that have the best shot of beating Trump. I'm not going to tell you who those are until, you know, unless you want to know. Because I'm not telling you how to beat Trump. Trump's strategy has been very clear. Whether you like it or not, I tell you, whether you like it or not. And I'm going to get to that on the, on the back end of my big picture segment. Where you don't have to like his policy, you don't have to like it. But there's a reason why he was elected. He was elected on, on this same track. He listen, maybe not the increased turnout, but he solidified a base of the Republican Party that was not really solidified. And he basically said, "Listen, you can be anti me, but you're really anti-American." So, to wrap up this point, who's in charge? Because we know Trump is the president, but for the Democrats, who's in charge? Is it Pelosi or the squad? Is it the mainstream Democrats? Or is it these progressive, maybe far-left Democrats of the squad? But I'll tell you one question I'll give the answer to is that coming up next will be my MOB reporter. That's next on Sports and the World.
and welcome back into sports and the world. And you may you may be noticing a theme with the music. If you're listening here on Anchor, you know it's Jennifer Lopez. She hit the big five zero. I love Jennifer Lopez. I think she's really in charge of me. But you know that's a discussion for another day. Well, it kind of ties in with J Lo, her fiance A Rod, great baseball player. You know, opinions of his personality, it could be disputed. But, I want to start off talking about my top five MLB teams. And this was a very hard list to construct because literally for the five spot, there was at least three teams that I felt deserved it. But, I gave number five to the Oakland A's. Listen, there are six and a half games back of a team that's going to be on this list. And listen, Matt Chapman, he's sixth in war. He's 10th in doubles, both in the AL. I think that Matt Chapman, he's a solid dude. The question is, and we'll get to the free agent, you know, get to the trade talk. But if the A's add maybe another arm, I'm not saying that they can win this division, but they could definitely compete for a wild card spot. And I think their biggest weakness is they're, they're, they're just young. And that's, you know, that's the Billy Bean, that's that type of age mentality, is that they're very young and get production out of them. And I think, you know, I can go on. You know, they have Mark Mulder, Barry Zito. Okay, they know how to maximize the minimum. And I think the A's have always been that way. So they're number five. The number four team is the Minnesota Twins. Listen, they're, three, they're just three games back. And... And you're shocking, you know, it is very shocking, you know. But this is what I like, they're pitching. They're second in starting pitcher wins in Major League Baseball with 42. You know, twin, you know, as I say, pitching is important when you get toward, listen, we're heading toward, you know, August, September, where you have to, you need pitching. The offense will be there, but you got to have pitching. And Jorge Polanco, He's fourth in offensive war and wins above replacement. He's fifth in the AL in batting average. Listen, there's, there's, I could have used Sand, you know, there's a lot of players I could have used, but I like Jorge Polanco here. And I say that they could challenge, once again, a team that's further on this list. And, and I do, and I do, and I do strongly believe that. That when I look at, they could challenge the number three team that's on this list, which is also the team I talk about number five. In terms of being there, in terms of like movement and top five team, they could easily be the third best team. But I think they they're under 500 their last 30 games. You know they lost a very thrilling game against the Yankees a couple days ago. You know they got to win close games. You got to win. You know, it, it may sound cliche, but the AL Central is, is clearly open. It's open for business. And I do believe that the Minnesota Twins have that opportunity. Listen, listen, Polanco keeps playing the way he's playing. And listen, starting pitching stays well. Like, you know, why not? And number three is the Houston Astros. Listen, they're leading the AL West. 
listen, I could have went with George Springer, who I had very early on as an MVP candidate, kind of faded off, kind of gaining steam again. You know, he's fourth at AL in home runs. Justin Verlander is the big story. He's second in the AL with wins. But listen, the concern here gives up a lot of home runs. And I talked about that, the hypocrisy where it's the same dude who said, listen, there's too many home runs being hit, but you lead the league in home runs, you know, giving up home runs. You know, Kershaw would have said this. I'm like, okay, yeah. You don't see Kershaw give up a lot of home runs. But I mentioned it like, you know, just a really top five active and, and home runs given up. That's a concern. But you know what? They win close games, though. They're 8-2 and two in X-rating games. And they're 18-12 and 12 in one-run games. And that's what I talked about with the Minnesota Twins. Those, those games under 500, you know, they're under 500. Close games. you got to win them. We're getting toward August, September. Every game from now on. Not saying that the ones played from, you know, <laughs> up to now are, you know, superfluous. But now we're playing playoff position. And I, and I think, like I said, the weakness. They give up their fifth in the Major League Baseball and give them home runs. It's not just Verlander. It's the pitching staff. And I get AL's an offensive league, but you can't. You can't be giving up too many big flies when you're trying to jockey. Because listen, that six and a half lead, if the A's make a move, they could gain. And then now we're having a whole new discussion come August. Number two, and listen, one and two, you can really juxtapose, but this is my one and two. And I'll explain why I put who I put at one and two. Number two, I put the, the LA Dodgers. They have a they were running they have a 14 and a half lead. They're the best team in the in the National League. I think that's not a for dispute. You know, Rio, he's first in ERA, Bellinger, second in slugging percentage. You know, they're covered on both ends. Like who's the the challenges? Maybe the Diamondbacks? Maybe? Like the Giants? You know, you know, but they're so far behind. Where we're talking, well, when are they gonna clinch? Not if they're going to clinch, when they're going to clinch. And that, to me, is important because you can start resting guys like Bellinger. You can start maybe peeling back innings for Ryu and Walker, Bueller, and Kershaw. You can start saving these guys for September, October. You can start saving those guys. And listen, they just went at home. They're 40-13. and 13. They're 40-13 and 13 at home. They're the best home record in all of baseball. And they're going to be hosting a lot of home games in the playoffs. Because I do believe that I don't see anybody catching them in the National League. I, I really don't. And the number one team, I got the New York Yankees. Ten-game lead. And the, this is the reason why I put the Yankees over the Dodgers. Because I do believe, it's kind of like when I talk about the NBA, which I'll talk about next second. It's where I believe that the AL and the NL are just great at different things. I think of the National League, I I think of great pitching, I think of great offense, but when I look at the Yankees, they just hit the ball off the cover, and listen, I just think they have the better overall lineup. Like, Bellinger is great, but when you have to face Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, Didi Gregorius, DJ LeMay, you Luke Voigt. 
You're going to face these dudes. That's a potent lineup. And I said it. When the hell did the Yankees are the best team in baseball? Because, listen, to get to where they are, Aaron Boone deserves a heck of a lot of credit. A heck of a lot of credit for them to be where they are. Listen, and they're 34-11 in the AL East. They, they beat everybody. Listen, they beat who they're supposed to beat. You know, if you don't count that, that Red Sox, you know, game they lost, you know, you know, who got blown out of the water, if you count that as like a little blip on the on the bigger radar, they're still a great team. And I think that the weakness may be getting on. If they can go get starting pitching, relief pitching, I think they're okay. Surprisingly enough, I think they're okay because of who they got on the back end. I think they're okay. But speaking of needs and weaknesses, the trade deadline. Listen, I just picked a couple of guys who I think are going to get moved. I think Noah Syndergaard, maybe Zach Wheeler, the Mets. Listen, I think the Mets have realized that this is a project. They're in the NLEs where you got the Braves and the Nats, and you just don't, you know, I think out of everybody in that division, they're, the, they're going to be the biggest sellers. Because I do believe that, you know, there's youth on that team, and they may try to move some other cap space to build. And I think those two, you can get a lot of prospects, maybe a starter if they want one in return. You know, the Blue Jays with Marcus Stroman, listen, I saw the guy pitch. Listen, if you need a if you need a guy who can just throw nastiness, you get Marcus from. You know, relief pitching, Ken Giles go for the Blue Jays. I think the Blue Jays could be the biggest players in selling. And that's I think because that team is young. Justin Smoke, you know, you know, there's veterans on this team, but I think there's the youth movement. I mean, you got Vlad Guerrero Jr., you got Biggio, and you got Conine's kid. There's talent. Blue Jays could be a great team in the next two to three years, developing that talent. Sell it, get something back. And as for hitters, Yasiel Puig, I think if the Reds, they're, they're in the NL Central with my Cubs, I think if they can't get any better, you sell it. Justin Smoke, as I mentioned, Scooter Jeanette for the Reds as well, and Hunter Renfro, the outfielder for the Padres. I think, you know, I don't think that Mass and Bumgarner gets moved unless they get a deal that knocks them off their socks. Unless they're getting back a legit starter, whether it's an everyday player or or, or in the rotation, and uh, your top prospects. And I don't think that teams are willing to give that knowing that he may not stay with them. After the, so I think that's important. But... You know, next time we talk, you know, these players will be in new uniforms. But when I come back, I'm going to give you my top five, you're getting two of them, NBA duos going into this season, next season. And that's next year on Sports and the World. Welcome back into Sports in the World. And if you're listening on Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or Radio, Radio Public, thank you for your listenership and as well for listening on any podcast listening device. 
to drop my information for the podcast here. It's at Sports the World for both Twitter and Instagram. And I will be creating a Facebook page for the podcast. If it does not come out today, it will definitely come out through the weekend. I'll be posting the link that you can listen to the podcast. That's going to be every Tuesday and Friday. A message link where you can have great discussions, have comments, you know, replies to whatever I say. So it's more creating more interaction with all of you. And now we're going to jump into my top five NBA duos going into the season. And full discretion, Kyrie and Kevin Durant are not on my list because Kevin Durant may not play this year. So why would I put a duo that we're not going to see? So it may picking a fifth duo hard, but not really hard when you when you see who it is. And with that, my number five NBA duo going to this season is Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum for the Portland Trailblazers. Look, Damian Lillard has a very high win share, and that's essentially the number of wins that contributed by a player. He's contributed to 70.3 wins in his career for the Portland Trailblazers. That's how important. That's why he got the contract he got. And McCollum can shoot. He's a 40% three-point shooter. And one of the things that could be concerning is that McCollum, he could be out next season. He's in the final year of his rookie extension. And I think with this duo, we don't talk about him because of how stacked the, the West is. It's super stacked. And so when we go and we talk about great duos, we don't talk about you know I could argue in any if they were in the if they were in the East, they would be all stars. And not to say that they're not all stars in the West, but when you have those who play the position they do, you're like, it's kinda hard to choose them over the over over certain players. So but the one thing for the Portland Trailblazers that really, really gets me is, is that you know the playoffs you know they're 19 and 32 since gaming Lillard's first season 2013-2014 season listen historically they haven't won a friend since the 70s since Jack Ramsey and have they come close absolutely those teams with Rasheed Wallace Clyde Drexler you know even like Terry Porter they've come close but it's just something not there, and it makes me wonder where, going back to McCollum, will he go elsewhere if he does not, if he wants to win championships? I mean, I don't knock those who want to stay and take the money. I don't. But everyone has different ambitions and drives. But can Portland somehow elevate themselves to contend? Because, listen, they beat... Listen, they beat the Thunder team, but listen, they got the floor mopped by the Warriors, who you wink, wink, might see later on this list. So that's a concern for me under 500 in the playoffs since 2013-2014. Now, the fourth duo is Harden and Westbrook for the Rockets. Look, the chemistry is already there. Listen, listen, this, they played in the finals together. You know, they were 27-21 while Harden and Westbrook were playing. You know, they could win 
come playoff time. Maybe not. I really like this duo because of the supporting cast. I really like the fact they were able to keep Clint Capella because he's going to be that third guy on this team. So, and, and they're MVPs. Listen, back-to-back years, Harden won in 2017-2018 season, Westbrook won the 16-17 season. Listen, they're great players. When I hear people say, oh, it's not going to work, I get it. I get it. Which alludes me to the concern that I have. Can there be a two-ball minimum? Because, look, in their MVP years, look, they both averaged 30 points. Harden 30.4, Westbrook 31.6. Listen, I do believe it works if you're asking, well, who has to change their game? Honestly, I don't think either. Like, if anybody to change their game, maybe Harden changes isocentric mentality. Because Westbrook's a triple-double guy. Listen, I, don't, I mean, I like how he gets them, but listen, he's a triple-double guy. He's going to make sure he gets his, but he's going to make sure that you get yours. And he's going to contribute on the rebounding. So this can work. My only concern is... When it comes to shot taking, who's going to be taking the last shots? How is it going to work? So that's the one dynamic that I look to see. Because personally, the chemistry is already there. And even in a very stacked West, they're, they're a top five duo, as you see here. And number three, I got Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. Look, if Klay was healthy, I could could have put them in the top two, but... He's not healthy. And people are like, well, why would you put them if you already know the top two dudes who I'm going to say? Listen, Clay just shoots the lights out in the playoffs. He's 41%. You saw before he got hurt how he single-handedly, without Kevin Durant, carried that Golden State team when Steph was not at his best. But when he got hurt, I said, well, that's a wrap. And it was, essentially. And listen, this duo, all they've done is win. Like, DJ Khaled, all they do is just win. Since Klay Thompson joined the Warriors in 2011-2012, they're 443 and 197. They've won 69% of their games as a duo. Name a duo on this list. They're the, the, the longest reigning list in terms of longevity, which leads me to the concern is it over? Listen, they went to five straight finals, three and two. And quite frankly, like I said, the West is just strong. And listen, Steph's going to be out. So now you're going to have to rely on D'Angelo Russell, who I don't think is bad, but I want to see the chemistry and how he fits. Because he's more he's more of a point guard. So does Steph move to the two? I'm being curious to see how this will come to fruition. Listen, they added, like, Willie Cauley-Stein. They added Glenn Robinson. There are pieces, but you can't replace a Clay Thompson. And number two, I got LeBron, Anthony, and AD. And I'll tell you why I chose them at two, because I really, once again, it was just like with the MLB list. I really, I had to choose one deciding factor, two, in this case. Listen, this is Showtime 2.0, folks. Magic Johnson in his career had 11.2 assists. LeBron has 7.2. Okay? He's the, the probably the greatest distributor of the ball since Magic Johnson. 
terms of being a guy who can play all five positions. Like you, you we could. I'm not talking he's better than Chris Paul at passing or anything like or Stockton, but LeBron can get give the ball up. Because listen, here's why I say it works. Because when I see Kareem, Kareem shot almost 55% from the field, and Davis is shooting 51%. And this is just for the first seven seasons. Because AD is, is going into his eight, so that the first seven seasons. That was Kareem in his first seven seasons. You see the similarities. I'm like, this could work. This could really work. And listen, they're defensively stout. LeBron is a six-time all-defense team player. And listen, Anthony Davis, he's a three-time block champ and a three-time all-defense. Listen, there's no excuse why this team should be good. Last year, they were defensively terrible. This year, there's no excuses. They're going to be probably one of the better defensive teams in the league. And I think it's very important to know that in the league, they'll be important. Then you throw, if you can get something out of Boogie Cousins, you know, if you can get, listen, this could be a great defensive team. Offensively, yeah. But defensively is where their bread and butter might be. And this was the concern, and this is why I put them to, is coaching. I like Frank Vogel. I advocated for Frank Vogel, one of the candidates I had to get the Lakers job when it was open. But when I look at the coach of the number one duo of this list, I go, how can I put the Lake this duo over that? Because at some point, coaching's going to... Frank Vogel has never had this type of talent. He never. Whether he was in Indiana, was, was Paul George there? I'm not entirely sure. But he's never dealt with this market. Listen, he's coached in Indiana and Orlando. I'm from, listen, Orlando is a, it's a big city, but basketball maybe not the biggest market. That's a concern to me. And of course, my number one team is, is you know, duo is Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Listen, the upside for this is strong. Listen, Kawhi is 28, Paul George is 29. Every other duo on this list, maybe except for Lillard and McCollum, has at least both players are in their 30s or, or pushing 30s. You know, Russ Book and those dudes are closer to 30. But listen, the upside is strong here, especially for Kawhi. Listen, they're just very smart the basketball. Kawhi and Paul George, you know, their turnover ratio. Kawhi, one and a half turnovers per game. Paul George, 2.6. They don't turn over the ball. And I think where they're similar, excuse my sniffles. And one of the things is, listen, they both came off of injuries in their career. They lost a year, and 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 they've always been productive. But this is the one thing that sticks out to me. Will they be together long? Listen, they could both be out after year three. And and listen, and, and essentially that makes space in the West open again. Because Paul George didn't, you know, his contract is shaped the same way Kawhi's is. I believe Kawhi, I think I said on the last episode of the podcast, I said, well, listen, Kawhi could be out year two to get super max money. He left a lot of money on the table in his career. He didn't play for money. But look, if he wants that last big contract, if, if listen, if the Clippers aren't producing, he's out. He's done. 
And I think that's very important because as great as Jerry West and Doc Rivers, Steve Ballmer, that triumvirate of of management, owner, and coach are, there has to be production. There's no excuse if you're knocking out in the second round. Okay, there's no excuse why this team cannot get to the finals with this duo. There's just no excuse. There's no excuse where the Clippers cannot win a championship. There's no excuses. And and as you noticed, all the duos came out of the West. So I said, well, what was the one East duo that I considered but said, uh, and that was Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. And here's why. Ben needs to find a jump shot to be a better threat to help Embiid. Because if everyone knows you can't shoot, they'll leave you open. They're gonna just going to go right to Embiid for the rebound. Because they know you can't shoot. You know, if he, unless he got the money, he's going to develop a jump shot. But you got to do it. The talent is there for Philly to dominate the East. But Ben Simmons needs a jump shot. Giannis is probably the more complete player in the East. If Ben Simmons gets a jump shot, then we can have that conversation again. But we can't until Ben finds that jump shot. And, you know, all the information is thanks basketball reference. Awesome job. Awesome research there on that end. But when we come back... It's time to go inside my big picture, and that's next here on Sports and the World. And welcome back into the final segment here of Sports and the World. And if you've listened with me so far, I truly do appreciate it. And one last time, the social media is at Sports the World on both Twitter and Instagram. And once again, I'll be creating a Facebook page for the podcast. It will come out sometime today or over the weekend. But, you know, we're all busy people. Schedule off if I can get it done as soon as possible. You can listen to all the episodes. They'll come on Tuesday and Friday every week. And with that, let's dive right in to the final topic here. Now, in my big picture today, I want you to think of it as... A window. I want you to see out this window. Like you can look out your window now. You can, I, if you're driving, you know, just focus on the window in front of you. But I want you to focus on what you see. You know, what you see out there is different. Everything out there, you're gonna see cars, trees. Everything is different. And that's what makes America truly what it is. We're different. And one of the things that can trip us up is that when we try to do those differences and try to put them everywhere, like it's one thing to place your differences politically, specifically, at your place of work. Because, and I'm going to get to that point in a minute, but... Listen, if you're on social media, I talked about it last week, you just have to be careful. You have people who don't know what to put, what's offensive, because we live in a world where you say something and boom, someone's offended. So, I want to talk about what Dan Lebitard, he went on the air last Thursday, 
and he stated that his own network, the ESPN, is cowardly for not allowing political discussion and that people are, quote, complicit. They do not call out the chant as racist. Now, he's referring to Trump's rally he had in North Carolina over the send her back chance, referring to Elon Omar of Minnesota. We talked about earlier with the squad. And I just want to read to you more of what he said. He said, quote, this felt un-American what happened last night. It's not the America that my parents aimed to get for us, for exiles, for brown people. There's racial division in this country that's being instigated by the president, and we here at ESPN haven't had the stomach for that fight because Jamel Hill did some things on Twitter, and you saw what happened after that. And then here, all of a sudden, nobody talks politics on anything unless they use one of these sports figures as a meat shield in the most cowardly possible way to discuss these subjects. And just to, I'm not going to read everything he said. I'm going to read this last part he said. Was that he said that the president was, quote, so wrong for trying to divide the masses. He argued that the subject isn't about politics, but rather race. He did to hammer the sports network for avoiding it. Now, for the record, I like Dan Levitard. I really do. I'm not, not saying that for hyperbole. I really do like Dan Levitard. He's very smart. He's a, he's a great writer. Great personality. One of the things that I can understand that you want to be conscious of the world around you. That's why I told you to look out your windows. Be conscious of what's going on around you. I'm not oblivious to that. And and like many of you, you're not as well. But this is where I have the problem. See, you can't compare necessarily what Jamel Hill did because Jamel Hill did it on Twitter. She did it on social media. And listen, when she's when she's at ES, when she's ESPN, listen, you're there to talk sports. But when you're on your Twitter, you can talk about sports, social issues, whatever floats your boat. And I felt that I could justify Jamel Hill more than Dan Lebanon in this situation because he espoused his feelings on the network's time. And listen, you don't have to like the policies of your company. You don't have, heck, you don't even have to like the person who makes the decisions. But if they're cutting you a check, you signed a contract, you have to adhere to the policies and procedures of that company. All of us have done it at some point in our life. You know, like I said, I work independently as a tutor, okay? So I create my own policy, but when I worked at other companies, I had to adhere to what they did. It didn't matter what, it became irrelevant whether I agreed or disagreed with their policies. My job was there to work, and the company hired me to do a job. And they hired me to do this and do that, not to step outside the lines of that, unless it was necessary. And I want to get to what the ESPN president, Jimmy Pataro, said in the LA Times article in May of this year. He said, without question, our data tells us our fans do not want us to cover politics. My job is to provide clarity. 
I really do believe that some of our talent was confused on what was expected of them. If you fast forward to today, I don't believe they are confused. That was in May. You fast forward June, July. Dan Levitar didn't care. So when he met with Pataro and listen, he did not, Pataro didn't shake, I believe, in that meeting how he felt about the policy he set. Because under John Skipper, you know, you could do those things. People can run a company the way they want to run a company. You know, like I say, Chick-fil-A, they're not open on Sundays because they're religious, the owner's religious ideologies. So don't, like, oh, and then you can argue, you know, I tell people, when I hear that argument, I'm like, well, that's his company. That's, that's the policy. You can't argue with people's policy. Now, if you don't like it, you can boycott it. But the last I checked, I see long lines wrapping around Chick-fil-A. So Chick-fil-A has not lost money. Because they have policy. ESPN is no different. Because ESPN understands that when people turn into the worldwide leader in sports, they want to hear sports. Not Fox News. Not MSNBC. If they wanted to watch it, that's what they would watch. They want to watch sports from an unbiased, non-political perspective. You can, listen, you know, unless you talk about Kaepernick, yeah, you can talk about politics. Yes, that's the, I understand ESPN's policy. Because you can alienate people. People say, oh, what about old white? No, no. You can alienate people because you don't tune in. I put it like this. You do not tune in to watch your evening news to hear the sports report, do you? You don't tune in to the Weather Channel for them to talk about foreign affairs unless it directly affects the weather. Unless it's a direct correlation. You can't be reaching, and I believe what Dan Levitar is saying, listen, I understand that he echoes the sentiments of a lot of people. I get it. But that's not the platform to do it when you're at ESPN's dime. And if everybody knew the policy. Listen, Patano said that in May of this year. And you couldn't adhere to it. Jamel Hill essentially lost her job, her and Michael Smith, because, listen, when they had the Sports Center at 6, they were talking about social issues when that slot was for sports. And I'm like... Nobody want to turn to it and hear, listen, that's what, listen, social media, if you want to do a podcast like I'm doing, and you can talk about that, that's fine. But you don't do it on the expense of the company you work for if their policy says not to do it. And so I want to talk about what Pitaro said in his quote that our data tells us our fans do not want us to cover politics. And trust me, I scoured and looked. And one of the things that I kind of stumbled upon came from 538, who used Google Trends and worked with Echelon Sports. So what they did, they covered Trump's 2016 vote share compared with the search interest for seven major sports by media market. They covered it from 2012 to 2017. They found that the heavy-leaning Democrat or leaning Democratic markets were in the NBA, Major League Baseball and NHL. That doesn't surprise me 
Because if you hear guys like LeBron, how he spoke and he endorsed Hillary Clinton, they're very, you know, even with Major League Baseball, it's very diverse. NHL, we, you know, so that didn't surprise me. Republican, you know, college basketball, college football, NASCAR. Once again, NASCAR, listen, it doesn't surprise me. College football is rooted in the South. It does not surprise me. But football was neutral. It didn't lean one way or the other who Democrat, Republican, what they searched for. And that's why I feel the NFL remains at the top competing with the NBA. Simply because politics. Only How they became politically involved was when Kaepernick. That was it. In Trump's words, going after the NFL. Trump never really went after college basketball, NASCAR, football. But he went after the NBA. Same Folks, I'm not surprised at the numbers. What Pataro is saying is that I don't want to alienate those who may, you know, we're talking about Trump. I don't want to alienate those who, like, listen, I watched NASCAR, but I don't like what he said. Or if you have someone who speaks against Nancy Pelosi say, you know, well, you know what? I don't like what he said if you're an NBA fan. And yet for the NFL, you care less because you want to watch sports. And and when I think of that, you know, athletes, to me, I believe always had a platform to use. Listen, Barkley said that, listen, I'm no role model and I get that. When I think of guys like Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, what they did beyond sports, that to me, they had a platform. And who were they working for? They were working for nobody. Like, yeah, they were working for boxing, NBA, but they, their policies, they respected. That, look, you had other players respect their policies and beliefs because they were athletes. They were not getting paid like Dan Levitard is to sit and talk about sports because they were playing sports so they had a platform to, to, to express themselves. It's why people look favorably at LeBron and maybe not at Michael Jordan when it comes to social stuff. Like, MJ came around, but, you know, MJ wasn't the greatest at social issues. He'll be the first to admit that, I assume. I assume. And it's not the first time that sports and, and politics ever merged. Listen, Bill Bradley was a you know, great Knicks player. He was a senator. From 79 to 1997, Kevin Jones, the mayor of Sacramento, the great point guard for the Phoenix Suns. He was a two-term mayor of Sacramento. Jim Bunning, great pitcher, former U.S. senator from Kentucky. Manny Pacquiao was a member of the Philippine House of Representatives. Vitaly Klitschko, world champion boxer, the mayor of Kiev as we speak. And Tom Osborne, the great Nebraska coach, was a member of the House of Representatives. So... Sport really lost its effect upon politics. But there should be a line. And Dan Lebetard, I believe what he did, crossed the line. I'm not saying he didn't make points, but I'm saying there's a time and a place for everything. And a lot of people don't understand that. People, I don't tell people they're wrong. I just say, why would you say it here? You were, if a company tells you, hey, listen, you're not going to talk about politics unless it affects sports, 
that's not the worst part. They're not telling you, listen, they're not telling you how, how in some countries where you can't talk about nothing. It's not a totalitarian policy because it's the worldwide leader in sports. You know, if you were to speak on that on MSNBC or any other platform and you say that, that's fine because you're not on their time. And that's why I say the Jamel Hill situation, she did it on Twitter. And what got her was that when she went on ESPN, her and Michael Smith, that's when, you know, you're on their dime. And if they say this is what you can and can't do and you break it, nobody's above reproach. And what I'll say is this before we wrap it up. It should not matter whether or not what your politics are. Because listen, it shouldn't matter. But when you're talking about sports, if you talk about it in the context of sports, like the Kaepernick situation, it involves sports. When you're talking about Trump in a rally, that's something I expect to be covered by, you know, like Nora O'Donnell, who I really love doing the CBS Evening News, David Muir, maybe, you know, I expect, you know, Lester, I expect those smart people to cover, not Dan Levitar. You can say it on your Twitter or any other platform, but don't use it on their dime, period. Period. And speaking of period, that's the end of this episode of Sports in the World. Once again, I thank you for listening, taking time out of your day. And once again, I'll, I'll, you'll hear me on Tuesday, but you'll also hear me here on Friday where you and I together will go on this journey of sports and the world.